Well, Johnny, so what's that? 30 seconds to tell the person next to you. What's your biggest fear? What do you fear most? Go. Anyone want to share their fears? Anyone want to face their fears by telling everyone? Music stands from Luke. Sorry? Drowning. Have you read my notes? <laughs> yeah. Drowning's actually one of mine, actually. And um, if, if that did come up in your conversations, we're in good company, I think, because um, a stormy sea is, uh, is uh, I think, quite a common, uh, common fear. And it's one that we see this morning um, from the disciples. So we're in good company. Um, we're in a safe place. We've got some experienced fishermen in our passage who are afraid of a um, wavy, stormy sea. And, um, and I think their fear goes slightly deeper than that physical fear um, that we'll see in a bit. Let me just pray before um, we continue. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in Jesus. Help us to see clearly who you are and our, our correct response to you this morning. Amen. I'm going to start with an apology, which is that I, for those of you who like to see visual things, I did have a PowerPoint prepared, but then forgot to bring it with me, so that's totally my <laughs> fault. Um, but the first thing you would have seen on there is my first point, which is that we're looking at um, now who is Jesus. That's the first thing we're going to see. And we've got right in the middle of the passage um, that we're going to straight jump into, um, we've got a bit of an awkward moment, I think, in, um, in this gospel, where we see something that um, well, we just know can't have happened. It's, it's impossible, isn't it? Jesus walks on water. Um, Toby showed us it's a stupid thing. Um, why don't we just dismiss that and move on? But I think that there are a lot of people who would approach the miracles of Jesus like that. There's a lot of people who would say, um, well, we know that can't happen, so um, let's try and find a way to make it understand how that could have worked instead. And um, there's quite a few conspiracy theories, I think, around those sorts of things, around the miracles. Everyone loves a good conspiracy theory. I think one of the biggest one currently, um, not biblical, but just a, a current conspiracy theory is that the world is controlled by the Illuminati. Um, if you have any contact with teenagers, they love that one. Um, people think that the moon landing was faked, the Holocaust didn't happen. Um, flat Earth theory, I met someone recently who um, swore by that. Um, and in this passage, people might say, oh, well, there must have been a sandbar or something out on the lake that Jesus could have walked across. Or, you know, it was quite stormy, it was windy, it was dark. Maybe they didn't really see Jesus, they just saw something that looked like him. Um, they were just desperate. So they thought, oh, Jesus, we, we really want to see you, so they convinced themselves. But the thing about all the conspiracy theories, including those ones, is that they start in the wrong position. They start by trying to create a case, um, despite what all the evidence is presented, um, and end up with a, a, an opinion or a, or a reality that is, is more popular than what is actually true um, based on the evidence. They don't normally hold up to scrutiny or, um, you know, historical or scientific evidence. Um, and if we look at these ones here, if we think about the people involved, the people who saw this, we've got professional fishermen who knew the lake well, um, they'd have known the depth of the lake. They, they'd have known the, the particular areas to fish. They'd have known where to avoid the shallow water. So they would have known if there was an issue like that. We've got then in Mark 50, in, sorry, verse 50 of this, um, of this chapter, um, they were terrified because they all saw him. It wasn't just one or two convincing them. All of the disciples, all 12 people 
saw Jesus walking on water, um, and they were all convinced that it was him. And then after that, he gets in the boat and goes to the other side, and then I guess the, the, the visibility would have been a bit, bit better when they're on land, and they're still convinced it was him, and they continue from there. So I think we can be safe to say that according to these eyewitnesses, this thing must have happened, or they were lying and making it up. And um, I think they were convinced, so um, that's good enough for me for now. What we need to begin with is to say, just like Toby showed us, I know that walking on water is not possible. That's a good place to start. But then to think, well, if these people saw it happen and they were convinced, then how did that happen? And, and what are they trying to tell me about the person who's doing this, um, this act? And that is the question that, that I said is the first thing we're looking at, is Mark's trying to ask us the question throughout the, the first half of this book. Who is Jesus and, um, and what's he doing? He tells us, Mark tells us his answer back at the beginning of the book in um, Mark 1 verse 1. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. We looked about um, a few weeks ago at exactly what that means and all that, that entails. But the rest of the book, or the, at least the first half, um, is Mark trying to convince us of why he's come to this conclusion? So Jesus here is walking on water. And the question that I think it leads us to ask is, who can walk on water? Toby can't. I can't. People can't. Um, yeah, I, I would recommend not going and trying it. Maybe a bucket's safe enough, but don't go out to a lake or, or a, a sea. But we've got... In Genesis um, chapter 1, verse 1, very beginning of the Bible, we, we, we see that um, it tells us, this is before the creation of the world, we've got the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. That's the first place where we've got someone or something over the waters, and it's the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. But even clearer than that, I think, is when we get to the book of Job, halfway through the Old Testament, we've got Job's confession of who God is, and he says in chapter 9, he alone, God alone, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He stretches out the heavens and he treads on the waters, sorry, the waves of the sea. Here's Jesus treading on the waves of a stormy sea of Galilee and he wants us to understand who he's claiming to be by that act. We've got another confusing part, though, I think, in this passage where... Um, which Jesus is walking out to the disciples. He's been up on the mountainside praying on his own. He sees them having a bit of an issue and he walks out to them over the lake. That's amazing in itself, isn't it? But then, verse 48, have a look down at verse 48. He says, he, he went out to them walking on the lake and he was about to pass by them. Now, if, it, if I was in that situation and I saw the disciples struggling, I, I'll walk out to them, I'll reassure them, I'll maybe get in the boat, I'll show them who I'm, a bit of a display of power, but why is he passing by? Why would he bother walking out all that way? I assume it's a pretty big lake, so why would you walk out all the way to the middle and then just walk past? And if we think back to Job chapter 9, where we were just a minute ago, where um, we're told that God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea, we've got a pretty amazing um, verse, just a couple of verses later. Job says this, he, that's God, God performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. We've seen those already. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot 
perceive him. Jesus walks on water to show that he alone can do that. And we, um, we now see that he passes by them without them initially seeing who he was or understanding what's going on. Mark's trying to make the link really clear to us, really explicit, that Job is confessing who God is, and Jesus is saying, yeah, that's me, who's that, that same God, creator of all things. But that's not the only reference we've got from the Old Testament. We've got a few more that we need to think about, because there's two of the biggest characters in the Old Testament, both um, had very special relationship with God. We've got Moses and we've got Elijah, both referenced heavily in the New Testament um, in connection with Jesus. And they have a very similar experience in different parts of the Bible. Back in Exodus for, uh, uh, chapter 33, Moses says to God, quite an arrogant claim, I think, but he says to God, now show me your glory. I don't think I'd dare to say that. But Moses says to God, now show me your glory. And the Lord replies, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you but you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. He says to him, I'll pass in front of you. In the next chapter of Exodus, that's exactly what happens. The Lord passes by Moses, and he gets a glimpse of um, the Lord's goodness, but only from behind. He can't see um, the fullness of God's glory. Then skipping forward again, we've got, um, in, in the book of 1 Kings, we've got Israel's prophet of the time, Elijah, and he was told by the Lord, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. That's two really key events in the Old Testament where God reveals himself to the leader of his people um, by passing by in front of them, showing them his glory. Jesus is showing us he can do what any human can't do, only God can do by walking on water. He passes by his disciples, he shows them his glory, just as the Lord did in the Old Testament. But here this time he's able to get into the boat with them, because the fullness of the glory of God has now been revealed in the person of Jesus, who's able to walk alongside his people. Uh, and there's another thing that I think really um, answers that question that Mark's asking us, who is Jesus? And it is the, the words of Jesus that we need to not miss. He doesn't say very much in this section. So we need to not miss it down in verse 50. He gives us this phrase just right in the middle of two statements where he's telling them to take courage, telling them not to be afraid. He gives them the reason why he can say that. It's in there, just three words. It is I, he says. Small words. Could be lost. It is I. And I don't think he's just saying, hey guys, look, it's me, it's Jesus. It's your mate, that guy we were hanging out with for a bit. It's not, he's not saying that, although he, he may be saying that partly. But I think what he's saying is much more profound, and it's lost a little bit through translation. Um, the Old Testament was in Hebrew, translated to Greek, which is what the, the uh, New Testament writers would have been referencing and what Jesus would have been referencing. Um, but what he's actually saying is, I am. He's saying, I am. Um, and if we return back to Moses' story, right to the beginning of his walk with God, it's in Exodus chapter 3, God reveals, him to, to, uh, reveals himself to Moses uh, at the burning bush, a story that many of us will know from childhood or, or, or elsewhere. Moses, again, very bold claim, he says to him, tell me your name. It's not quite at the point of saying to God, um, show me your glory, but he's saying, tell me your name, who are you? And God says, I am 
who I am, or I will be what I will be. Jesus here is calling upon the name of the Lord to show who he is. He's saying, I am, take courage. I am, it is I. The Lord revealed himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but also the God of the present and of the future by giving his name to Moses. And Jesus here, I think, is doing exactly the same thing with those words, um, with that reference. And there's one final thing where um, Jesus is just showing us again and again, Mark's showing us who Jesus is by, um, by what he continues to do when they get to land. He go, they get to Gennesaret in verse 53, and uh, he gets out of the boat, and they, they, people recognize him, they bring the, the sick, they bring the people who are uh, unwell, and they're mobbed by crowds. Uh, Jesus, again, is, is not given any rest. He's, he gets to the edge, and he's immediately healing people. He has compassion. And as we've seen time and time again so far, we're only at chapter 6, and he's healed many people. Again, a thing that only God can do. The end of this section says, they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. What power is that? That is, is shown. So we've got Jesus um, showing us, or Mark asking the question, <clears throat> who is Jesus? And I think Jesus is showing us quite clearly that he is the same God, now revealed in, um, in human flesh. He's the same God as was revealed to us uh, in the Old Testament that we've got there. Which leads us to um, the second thing that I want us to think about, which is the responses of the people in this passage. What is the right response to Jesus here? Because if he's the same God as was revealed in the Old Testament, then I, I would expect that it would be um, a fairly similar response to what we see when God reveals himself there. Those people um, in the Old Testament, Moses, Elijah among them, they weren't able to see fully who God was. They could only see part of him. But even then, listen to a few of the responses from Moses and Elijah at those key moments. First one, Moses, when he sees the burning bush, uh, and, he, and he realizes who it is that he's speaking to. We see this in Exodus 3. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. When the Lord passes by Moses later in Exodus 34, this is his response. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. And then when the Lord passed in front of Elijah on the mountain, here after some um, incredible and amazing dramatic displays, but the Lord wasn't in those. He was in a quiet whisper. In that quietness, Elijah perceives that it's God there, and he comes out and he says this. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. These people are aware of the weightiness and the seriousness of coming face to face with the Lord. And often people kind of they make this distinction between an Old Testament God and New Testament God where you've got um, you know, this distant, demanding, um, tyrannical, uh, holy, distant God who, who's in the Old Testament and, and we should fear him, rightly so, and we should be afraid to come before him. But then they talk about Jesus as if he's this uh, much more friendly, comfortable, um, compassionate God that we, that, you know, that's not there in the Old Testament. But as Jesus already showed us, I think, He's claiming to be the same God as was there in the Old Testament. Let's look at the responses um, to that. In, uh, back in Mark 6, where we are today, uh, we've got verse 49. Let's look at the response of the disciples. 
But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Now, I don't know if that's because they understood fully what he was trying to say to them. Probably not. They at least saw someone walking in the water and think, that's weird, that's scary. Um, and that is something that is totally out there, totally not what I was expecting um, to happen. And they know that this is a, um, a serious moment where there is something that is out of their um, experience and their comfort zone, and they're terrified when they come face to face with Jesus, showing him, showing them his power. So we've got Moses, we've got Elijah, we've got the disciples here, and they all have the same reaction in different ways when they encounter God in, in their presence. And we need to remember that when we come before him, that we can't just treat him as um, some domesticated genie or our mate down the pub who will just do what we ask of him or be there for some advice when we need it. Jesus is to be feared above all others because he is that same God of the Old Testament. And on our own, we can't stand before him. We can't stand before him. The third thing that we see is um, a surprising thing in light of all that, actually, which is what Jesus says to to his disciples. We've already seen part of it, but outside of that statement of who Jesus is saying he is, we have two statements where Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. But if he's... um, but if he's who he says he is and who he's claiming to be and what Mark's saying he is, then that's a very strange thing for him to say. Surely he should be saying, fear me, don't come too close, take off your sandals, as, he said, as God said to Moses, because you're on holy ground, cover your face as Elijah did. But here Jesus is the only one who has authority to say to them, do not be afraid. We saw a few weeks ago where uh, Jesus was in, um, in another boat in a storm on the same lake, that he calmed. And um, again here, as soon as he gets into the boat, the, the wind calms down. Jesus shows that he has the authority to do that, to have that power over nature. If I got into a boat, which I do sometimes, if I got into a boat, if I got into that boat, if I got into that boat specifically and said, do not be afraid to the disciples, I think they'd probably throw me back overboard. But Jesus is the only one who can say, do not be afraid. And the wind responds to him as well. Where's there fear or uncertainty in your life where you are coming up against storms? I'm sure if I walked into those storms with you and said to you, don't be afraid, everything will be all right, again, you'd probably just push me away and say, what do you know? You've no experience of this. Might be relational stress makes you think that God's not with you or for you. It might be um, career problems. It might be um, sickness of yourself or others. Death that's hanging over you. could be all sorts of things that are tempting you to doubt whether God's with you. Jesus walks into the situation and he says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he has the authority to say that. I don't, but he does. But I think there's an even greater reason why we shouldn't be afraid when Jesus is with us. And that's because, as we're going to see, and and particularly as we end up um, towards the end of the book, when we come to Easter, um, we see what Jesus came to do and and what he came to achieve for us. And if we look back to the Old Testament, the main reason that it's right for us to fear God isn't just because 
um, there's a lot of difficult stuff going on around, it's because he's a completely pure and good God and we're not. If we stood in his presence, as God said to Moses, no one can see his face and live. We'd be burnt up if we stood in his full presence on our own. We've been separated from him through our sin and our rebellion against him. Leaves us in a position of deep fear to stand before him, which is um, something we're all going to have to do. But Jesus comes in and he says, do not be afraid, because he's paid the price of our rebellion. His death that we'll see in a, in a few months' time has restored our relationship with God, and it has um, shown us that we can be welcomed back as God's children, as a father welcomes his child. The resurrection goes on to give us hope and assurance that Jesus doesn't just have authority over the weather and um, sickness and whatever else is going on, but he has authority over our oldest enemy of death. We don't need to fear the future because um, we will be raised with Jesus one day and our debt has been paid so that when we stand in the presence of God, we don't have anything to fear. We're not in the position of Moses or Elijah because Jesus is standing for us. And that's where I'd, um, I'd really like to end, to be honest, because um, it's a nice positive position, isn't it, to finish there? But I don't think Mark lets us do that because um, it's not quite where this section of, um, of our passage ends. We're left, to be honest, with um, confused and afraid disciples who, these are the people who are closest to Jesus during his ministry, and, um, and they just still don't really get it. We're told that they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. And um, to be honest, I've got a bit of sympathy for them because um, they get a bit of a hard time with their slowness to understand the disciples, don't they? And I, I was saying in a community group this week, um, after we were thinking about the loaves specifically, when Jesus fed the 5,000, that when I read that, um, when I read that, that Mark says they had not understood about the loaves, I think, look, disciples, you're not on your own. I don't get it either. Um, how on earth are we meant to understand what, what's happening? Johnny did help us to see last week, though, very helpfully, that um, the, la- the, the feeding of the 5,000 with the loaves, it's just another sign to show us exactly who Jesus is. It's making a very bold statement about, um, about what, who he is, what he's come to do, um, and what he's able to do. The disciples being given sign after sign of who Jesus is, is um, evidence for who Jesus is claiming to be, but they're still only here seeing a glimpse of who Jesus really is. But the more worrying part for me, actually, is, um, is the end of verse 52. The end of verse 52. After it says they had not understood about the loaves, I can kind of understand that, fair enough. But this is what it says after that um, wonderful semicolon. Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. And they're in, at the end of this passage, a very dangerous position. Because if we think back through the Bible, um, historically um, in the Bible, about what happens to people with hard hearts, they don't have a happy ending, generally. Pharaoh in Egypt has a hard heart, as he won't let the people of Israel go from slavery to go and worship the Lord. So God sends plagues, and eventually death to Egypt, both to um, the nation of Egypt as a whole, 
then to the royal household, and then to Pharaoh himself, because he won't acknowledge who, um, who God is. We're told there that um, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and then eventually the Lord hardens his heart. The Pharisees in this gospel already have been opposing Jesus. They've been plotting to kill him. And in chapter 3, it says that they have stubborn hearts. It's something that deeply distresses and angers Jesus, we're told, back in chapter 3. And time and time again, Jesus pronounces judgment on them for their hardness of hearts. Now, it is going to be all right. The spoiler alert for the, uh, for the disciples is that by the end, they do end up fully understanding. They do get it, and they do respond rightly. They're just not quite there yet. But there's still that warning, I think, that just because they're, Jesus is in a circle, that they're, they're right there seeing all the signs and hearing everything that is there, that their faith doesn't come to them naturally. It's not just an assumption that, um, that they will be okay before Jesus. And it's a, it's a warning to us not to just assume that just because we go to church or um, have been baptised or do some other religious activity that we are going to be okay before Jesus. If we haven't fully understood about the loaves or about the walking on the water or who Jesus is and haven't responded to him in the right way, then, um, then we're in a position of great fear. But if we accept him truly and... Um, ask for his forgiveness for our rebellion against him, then, um, well, we, we can stand with the disciples and receive those words from Jesus. Do not fear. Take courage. It is I. And there's one final group of people who, who are seen to respond right at the end of this chapter. Um, and they're just the um, ordinary people of Gennesaret. It's, um, it's possibly the same place as... Um, as we've seen in chapter 5, slightly different name, Gerasenes it's called there, um, where Jesus heals a demon-possessed man back in chapter 5. Um, we've, we've seen before, as we look through that, that it's non-Jewish territory, um, and we, we've got a, a demon-possessed man being healed. Um, and it ends that section with this. So, the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So if it is the same place, words obviously spread. This guy's gone around telling them all about Jesus and the amazing stuff he's done for him. Um, and as soon as Jesus comes back, everyone hears about it pretty quick. There's, uh, they've heard that there's someone here who can sort out their problems. They're in desperate need and they've got desperate situations. So they come to him in a frenzy with um, mobs and um, sicknesses um, whatever needs they have, they come to him. says wherever he went, he wasn't given a minute to himself. Villages, countryside, towns, everywhere that Jesus travels, he's, he's, uh, he's hounded by the people. And Jesus, of course, he responds with compassion, as we see. Um, he, he heals all the people who come to him. But I think there's, there's something slightly sad here about this um, this ending in, the, in this section. Because Jesus has shown us that he has so much more to offer than just relief from physical suffering. And we're not told here if there is anyone who does respond on a deeper level than just 
um, Jesus, can you sort my, my, um, my sickness out? And if they don't respond in that way, well, even if they do, but more seriously, if they don't, they, they're going to get ill again. They're going to die. No one from this section has stayed alive to the present day. So all of them will have had to face, um, face Jesus. And if they haven't responded to him on a deeper level, then they will be rightfully afraid when they come face to face with Jesus. Do you know, the majority of people, when faced with a moment of crisis, even the strongest who argue against the gospel and against Jesus, even those people, in moments of crisis, their response is normally to pray. They'll cry out to God who they don't believe in because they've run out of their own resources. God may answer their cry in that moment. He may not. That's his decision. But they're asking him to meet a need that isn't their most pressing or most serious need. When you tell your friends about um, who Jesus is and what he's done for you, what do you say to them? Do you tell them about the time where you felt really close to God or you heard him speaking into a situation you were in or um, maybe that really amazing story you've got or testimony where God healed you or a family member when, when you prayed for it. Maybe you tell them about how your mental health has been restored because um, of what Jesus has done for you or um, because you have a higher self-esteem because of, of God's love for you. If you're telling your friends about that, then please don't stop. I'm not going to say don't tell people about that stuff because it is all really valid and amazing stuff that God is doing in people's lives. So, um, And it's stuff that Jesus was doing as well. So don't stop that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but let me just suggest that they probably aren't actually the most pressing or greatest transformations that God has done for you if you're a Christian. And they aren't the biggest needs your friends have either. They might help you get to their biggest need. They might be a fantastic pointer of who God is and his love for you, but it's not the biggest need that they have. We need to deal with the fact that on our own before God, we need to be completely terrified, just as Moses was, just as Elijah was, just as these fishermen were when they saw him walking on the lake. But when we're with him, We don't need to fear because in the person of Jesus, through his death and resurrection, he says to us, do not be afraid. It is I. I am. Take courage. Let's pray. Father, we come before you knowing that we should fear you. For you're perfect and right and we are not. It's only by Jesus' blood that we can enter your presence and rejoice at those words that Jesus says to us. Do not be afraid. We worship and praise you for who you are. Thank you for bringing us back to you. Thank you for showing us all this in the person of Jesus. Amen.